I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you're listening to Salty Cinema. My guest today is producer, author, and film marketing specialist Mark Joseph. He is the founder and CEO of MJM Entertainment Group and has worked in development and marketing on over 40 films, including The Passion of the Christ, Holes, Ray, The Chronicles of Narnia, and Little Boy. Mark is also a record producer and has his own label, Bully Pulpit Records. Here is my conversation with Mark Joseph. Two weeks before Ben Hur came out, you said that it was going to flop. And <laughs> Did I, I tell you that? Yes, and I, I want to know how you knew that or what what you saw yeah. that was coming down the. I think I knew several months pike. before. Yeah. So I have this very sophisticated technique of deciphering uh, what audiences are going to react to in a film, and I, what it is is I listen to people, mm-hmm. <laughs> and. Uh, Somehow that eludes a lot of people in Hollywood. Um, when the Chronicles of Narnia, or no, when the Passion of the Christ was getting ready to come out, I called my relatives out on the country, maybe a month before release date. And I called my aunt in Dallas, and I said, I'm working on this film, and she said, you mean the Passion of the Christ? And I said, did I talk to you about that? And she says, no, I, but I, I, know, I know all about it. I have my tickets for opening day. And I was like, man, that is, that is really weird. And... Uh, and I called my aunt in St. Louis. She's about 70 years old at the time. Asked her the same question. She goes, I have my tickets for opening day. I thought, this is really weird. And I asked her, when was the last time you watched a movie? And she said she had never been to a theater in her entire life. <laughs> she hadn't gone to The Sound of Music. She hadn't gone to Bambi. Her first experience was Jesus getting beaten to a pulp. Wow. My aunt in Dallas hadn't seen a movie since E.T. in theaters. So 1981, so 23 years. Then I called my wife's grandfather in Seattle. He had his tickets. That's when I went back to Mel at the in the office and said, "There is a tsunami coming, a tidal wave coming in a month, and we have no idea." But I'm telling you, my relatives alone are are America basically, and so all these people showed up on opening day. So I'm I'm half joking, but in terms of uh, how do I know? But so on 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 Ben Hur. The fundamental misunderstanding on Ben-Hur, I know how my friends in Hollywood think. They all sat around a table and said, okay, there's this Ben-Hur that's been out there for a while. How can we make this work? Oh, the Christians, they all love Ben-Hur. It's like the great Christian story of all time. It's not the great Christian story (laughs) of all time. Um, The only reason that we know about Ben-Hur is because what comes out, remember when in 1959, most Christians, I would say, or conservative Christians, or evangelicals didn't go to movie theaters, period. So they missed it at the theater. So they never even saw it in the theater. Um, And then remember, I used to, when I was a kid growing up, every Christmas they would show Ben-Hur on TV. And I was like, what does this have to do with Christmas? This isn't a Christmas story. But it was like, the networks were so nervous about having Jesus material, the closest they would get to would be, well, let's throw Ben-Hur up on uh, Sunday night and we'll get all the religious people to watch it and we'll pretend it's a story about Christmas. Uh, and so, so these factors come together, and the misinterpretation is that all the Christians in America are dying to see Ben Hur updated. I mean, so, so, so your foundation of your house is a total 
untruth. It's not a. It's just it's a fantasy. And then you so you build on that, and you keep building, and you keep building, and you keep telling you know they keep telling themselves it's going to be great, it's going to be great. All the Christians love it. Uh, we got Rick Warren to love it. We got Billy Graham, and they just talk each other into a frenzy. And it's just like it's there's no foundation to that house. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's a bad movie. It's not that you shouldn't make a Ben Hur movie, but it's just that you have to make it with a realistic assumption and understanding of how people live. And I have a wife. We have six children at our house. Do you think my wife? is at home going, I can't wait for that Ben-Hur remake so I can spend $100, get a babysitter for my children, go out to dinner, dinner with my husband, and relax from a long week of taking care of kids to watch Ben-Hur. I mean, if you think that, I have a mental institution. But that's how they talk themselves. And so Hollywood is a collection of people who we talk ourselves into stuff that's just not true. We have all kinds of market data, and we have you know, test. We, we tested it with a group of whatever, and, uh, but it's just it's just built on crazy assumptions. And the same thing with the Noah movie, right? Who in their right mind thought, "Gee, I think it'll be a great idea to let Darren Aronofsky make a movie about Noah, in which Noah tries to kill his granddaughters and leaves his daughter-in-law behind as they rush?" I mean, it's just it's just insanity, and so. Yeah, so I feel like I'm this person watching a train come down the track and and I can see that this kid is going to be hit. And I'm like, train, train's coming, train's coming. This kid's going to get hit. And they're like, no, 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 no. He's not going to get hit. And and so that's a great example. And if I told you that weeks ago, um, I, I didn't know I'd told you that. I Months out. Yeah. I mean, I, and I, again, it's not that I'm this great wizard. I just listen to people, and I, you know, when I when I get in a cab in New York City, I just listen to the driver. When I when I'm with people, I try to. I often ask me, "What did you? What's the last movie you guys saw?" Mm-hmm. You know, it's it, just listening to people is really amazing what you can learn. Now, I don't want this to to sound like I'm just making the art people want. It's not that. Mm-hmm. When I worked with Mel Gibson, the genius of Mel Gibson is. He made his crazy work of art, The Passion of the Christ, but then he tinkered and he listened to people, right? So you don't want to just be uh, listening the whole time and having people you know, mm. tell you what to do, but he made his great masterpiece and then he tinkered and tinkered and tinkered with on the margins and the edges. You know, he, would, he had no resurrection initially. And these Christian leaders would come in and say, Mr. Gibson, or evangelical leaders would say, we love your movie, but you might want to throw a resurrection in because it's kind of important to our story. Mm. He just, everybody dies, but this guy rose again. So I was like, great, I'll go out and shoot a resurrection scene. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that's ben the Heard, though, could have been a movie not targeted at Christians at all. I mean, the original was had the most Academy Award nominations until Titanic. I think had the same amount, but I mean, this was a best picture, huge movie that there was a secular audience for. Why couldn't it, why didn't it appeal to them either? Well, I mean, now you're getting into more story issues. I was going on the surface of just little marketing things, but now you're going into more story issues. And even, I mean, it's interesting now that they, I don't know why right now. Even a mainstream audience though, I, I just don't think there's a large clamor, but okay, let me take your premise. Then you have to have a star. If, if you're going to go that route, you have to have a star. And Morgan Freeman doesn't carry a movie. So if that had been, okay, Russell Crowe or whomever, yeah. okay, now you're at least in the ballpark. Because it, it should have been or could have been another gladiator-type success. Yeah. And, and by the way, if you're the successor to a Charlton Heston movie, mm-hmm. you do need that star in that role. Mm. 
So, and, you know, part of it is learning the wrong lessons. I think um, one of the lessons that I've been a part of maybe teaching people is that you don't have to have a star necessarily. That's not what drives the audience always to a movie. But if you take that lesson too far, you end up with Ben-Hur with no star. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of we're going to just hire a bunch of Moroccans to play these roles and nobody cares who knows who they, who knows who they are, um, there is some truth to that, but not in a case like this. Um, so there's just so many problems. And, and, you know, by the way, um, if I was doing Ben-Hur, I would have gotten Charlton Heston's son involved. I would have gotten his grandson involved. I would have really kept a connection to the original. To have uh, Charlton Heston's son, uh, whose name is Frazier, and his grandson Jack, out there in the media talking to all the oldsters about how we're the connection between these two epics. Mm -hmm. Dad would have been proud. I mean, that's the kind of things that you do on the margins to make people go, oh, okay, wow. So to have a 65-year-old guy, you know, sitting in his house watching Fox News with his wife, and he sees Charlton Heston's son is on the screen. He's talking about this great movie. How do we got to go watch that? So there are ways mm -hmm. to reach out on a marketing level. On a story level, you know, I think, uh, is it Beck, Beckmanoff? Uh, I forget what his, his last name was, but the director. Um, in a weird way, I think they were even more faithful to the, to the Christian content than mm. the original Ben-Hur, which is ironic. But none of that was communicated. Mm. Um, if I was a church-going person sitting in a pew, I would never have known. It would look like a great chariot race. I didn't know as a consumer that there was all this spirituality in it, that it was even more uh, Christian in a sense. Right. And none of that was communicated. They just pretended it was a great chariot race. Mm. So there's just so many things you can, you know, a movie is like a souffle. And if you just get one ingredient, a pinch of salt wrong, the whole thing collapses. So there's probably like 10 different things that went wrong. And each one of them, uh, you know, could have been rectified. But the bottom line is if you start with incorrect assumptions, then everything falls apart. And I think they just, I think literally they thought, if we just announce that Ben-Hur is coming, those religious people will just flock. I mean, and then if we just say that Rick Warren loved it and like 10 leaders loved it, then they just flock to it. And I wish life were that simple. I wish, and Christians are not that simple. They're very complex people and everybody's different. And, and so it's just, a, it's just so many misconceptions that build up into a crescendo that leads to a epic, epic, um, you know, bomb like that, which, which shouldn't, it shouldn't have done those horrible. Oh, one last thing, it's summertime. Mm -hmm. August 19th, I think it was. Never release a movie like that in the summertime. You know, people are out of their rhythms of life. And I, you know, most of these things that I'm telling you, I discovered the hard way, the painful way. Uh, we, re we released The Chronicles of Narnia on December 9th. The film does, I mean, the world would say I did great. I think it did very poorly. Mm. Uh, and then it started going down second week, third week. The third week, uh, uh, just after Christmas or around Christmas weekend, it suddenly lurches upward and beats King Kong at the box office. Mm. Well, I didn't know what that meant, but we figured it out. And I went to uh, George Barna, who is a pollster and knows the habits of church-going people. And he was like, well, Mark, this is obvious. People are busy in December. You've got your church plays and your Christmas plays, and you've got Aunt Helen's party and all this stuff that you don't have time to go to the theater December 9th, but you're waiting till after Christmas when everything's done. Now let's go watch the movie. Yeah. Um, we released a movie called America on July, July 2nd. Total stupid, stupid, stupid thing to do. But we thought, oh, the rules don't apply to us because our movie is special. And we all think our movies are special, right? Um, and they're not. They're, the rules of the universe still apply, 
And so, so summertime, you're out of your patterns of life. You know, you're, you're on vacation, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're just not in the normal cycle. And so a movie like Ben-Hur, which should have reached very traditional people who are very kind of traditional also means that you kind of have patterns in your life. You go to church on Sunday, you go to Bible study on Wednesday, whatever it is, you have a pattern often and you're out of that regular pattern. And so the time when you would have gone to a movie. And last but not least, people need time to prepare. A movie for a traditional person is like a rock concert. So you don't, when you, de when you decide to go to a U2 concert, you don't just go, oh, it's, I think I'll go to the U2 concert tomorrow. You're like buying tickets ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Not you personally, but you know, yeah. generally. It's like next uh, April 4th, I'm going to a U2 concert. And you get ready. That's how movie going is for the non-regular movie goer. And the notion that you can just throw up an ad or put your actor on Jimmy Kimmel and say, tomorrow movie's opening. It doesn't work for this kind of person that we discovered with the passion. Okay, so with the passion, can you talk about how you got involved with that and what your what your job was with that movie? So I had two jobs. I had an official job that I was paid by the film, and I had an unofficial job that I was paid by another group to do. And so uh, I was officially paid to produce the soundtrack. So okay. I, I produced the soundtrack called the uh, Passion of the Christ Songs, and we brought in artists to watch the movie. We had some Christian artists, some non-Christian, I mean, just mainstream artists. We had a kind of a hodgepodge of artists. Unofficially, I was paid to do some marketing by another group, and so I worked with Paul Lauer, who was the head of marketing, and he oversaw everything. Mm. And um, I brought in a lot of artists to watch the film. So I brought in everybody from Nine Inch Nails to um, Megadeth to wow. uh, the artists that were on the album. Um, and uh, I basically asked them to write a song after they watched their, mm. their, their art, their song. Not all those artists ended up on the soundtrack, of course. Um, so it was just fun to watch an artist uh, watch a piece of art and then make a piece of art in reaction to that. Mm -hmm. and how would they do it? And yeah. We had an album of country artists and rock artists and um, R&B artists, and gospel artists. It was just this hodgepodge of of great songs. And then just the, the official marketing operation was headed up by a guy named Paul Lauer. And so uh, I definitely worked with him and, and his team to help uh, develop strategies. And basically, um, you know, it was just, um, it really wasn't rocket science. It was just uh, showing the film early to lots of people that were influential. And basically, if you think of America as a, a country that's full of, let's just say, a thousand tribes, and uh, the idea was if you can reach the tribal leader of each tribe, you will reach the tribe. And uh, it doesn't always work because some movies don't, you know, aren't, aren't worthy of that and don't deserve to be. Uh, but, but that's the idea is we screened early for lots of people who were how, in influential how positions. Um, 13 months in some cases, 10 months. Um, so, the, so the movie was, was done and you, you were showing people a year out before it was actually it wasn't even done. So you're, you're yeah. showing, yeah. Okay. So that's part of the, you know, I think the gift that I received from from Mel Gibson at the time was just watching an artist in action and learning from him as an artist, not so much. Uh, just um, he was extra. He is extraordinarily confident in his gifts and in his work, and most mm -hmm. artists I find are not confident. And so he, most artists will not let their work be seen in process mm -hmm. because they're not confident of it. And he was very confident and open 
Uh, and so that has been a lot of studios and artists will not let their movie be seen in process. And he would be, he would show us and others, and he would say, "What do you think? Should I have more blood coming out of Jesus' side or less blood?" I remember one time we were like raising our hands, more or less. It was like a vote, you know. And so again, he had the big picture down, yeah. but he knew he needed help and the little things. And I remember I made a suggestion. Uh, I said, "You know, Simon of Cyrene is supposed to be a black guy in the mo- in the in the Bible. He's from Ethiopia, I think." So his, he, he should be like darker. So I, mean, I was like, okay, so he would darken, he darkened him to make him look more African-American features. Mm. Things like that, that he was very open to. Uh, he was very unsure of himself at times because he was, I'm sorry, he was unsure of the box office, if it was going to do well. Right. He was not confident of that. But, but just watching that process, and so that's made me as a filmmaker to be much more open in my process to invite people in. I would rather be embarrassed in front of 10 people at a small screening than before the whole world. Mm. To me, it's like, imagine if your teacher came to you in seventh grade and said, I'm going to give you all the answers to the test tomorrow. Would you like that? Great. Yeah, thanks. That's kind of how it is to me with these with people watching it early. They're mm-hmm. giving you the problems. They're telling you the problems beforehand. And you can solve most of them. So did, was it, did Mel want to... Did he have that idea of let's let's get to the pastors? Let's get that was kind of your the marketing no. team. Yeah, that, coming up so with. Paul Lauer and I had um, worked on a film called Joshua together, and so uh, we went immediately from that. Paul went directly to the Passion, and then he brought me along a little bit later. So that was something we had developed on this movie Joshua that we had begun to notice that um, that when we reached out to groups, it was very effective, and so we did that for for Narnia as well. And and before that, I mean, I know Passion of the Christ kind of became the like benchmark, like you know, Christian movie that does huge, and now people want to make things. But before that, were there just not the movies that you could go to pastors with like that, or like they just weren't being made, or ha- had anyone ever tried taking a movie that might not have even been very explicitly Christian and saying, "Hey, these this has cool themes. That I think your congregation would." it be into yeah I mean generally in the past it would consist of a really bad movie that people would say hey go to your theater and make a statement for God mm. and so okay okay I'll pay 12 you know I'll pay 10 bucks and go and but it was really a horrible movie you remember there was a movie called the Judas project and it was just unwatchable but you know, people felt like gee we have to do this as our duty to watch a bad movie and tell the box office to whatever um, so I think with Joshua, it was a movie. Joshua was a story about uh, starring Tony Goldwyn, about Jesus comes to Earth and lives as a guy named Joshua, and nobody could figure out who he was, but it was actually Jesus. So this was our first inkling. So the movie came out and it bombed theatrically, and so we were given the task at Crusader Entertainment, and, I, and then I brought Paul on, Paul Lauer on. We were given the task to re-release it in six months. So we spent those six months just doing grassroots marketing. And I think the the first inkling we had was the film opened in Honolulu and a church there, a mega church, the pastor got really into the movie and he basically dismissed his congregation and said, let's all go watch this movie. So you had like thousands of people descending on a theater and the box office was, I was told at the time it was the biggest box office in the history of Honolulu. That was the first inkling we had, like, this is interesting, that there's something here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's, it was a convergence of factors. Um, you know, first of all, Christians had often been told not to attend movies. You know, sort of 
let's say the 1950s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, and that was slowly lifting. Uh, I know this uh, sounds hard for you to believe, but <laughs> but it's true. Um, so okay, so there was kind of a per- permission slip that it's okay to go watch the movies now, and then you had this ex- this example of some films being made with Christian themes that were interesting that were coming together, and then sort of Mel Gibson's celebrity uh, and the fact that he would do this. All these factors were kind of coming together, and and just our abilities to communicate. So uh, in the old days, let's say the 80s and even up to the 90s a film review would come in a Christian publication several months after the film was released. So it was too late to impact box office. And so that changed, where we got, we finally got to have film reviewers who were for Christian publications watching movies in real time enough to affect box office. Mm. So that's a change. A good example is Chariots of Fire, which a lot of Christians didn't see the first time around because they didn't know about it, and they didn't find out till later, and it was too late to impact box office. Um, you can also see that with Braveheart, by the way. Braveheart initially does a certain amount at the box office, and a lot of Christians missed it. By the time it was re-released because of Oscar consideration, they had heard about it and went to watch it. So the second round, theatrically, you can see that impact. So the convergence of Christians as kind of a, a, a force to be reckoned with happens right around the, the Passion. And this is easily identifiable, by the way, on numbers-wise. The Passion was predicted by Variety and the LA Times to make between 15 and 25 million dollars opening weekend or opening week five days it makes 125 so that's wow. the gap in my relatives right remember I told you about my relatives when my yeah. relatives showed up they made that number go from uh, essentially uh, 15 20 million to 125 million so that's the I call them the unidentified film goer the UFG there are those are the, people that, the people that came out and a lot of them haven't been back since they might have come for Narnia. Um, maybe they came for one of the cheaper Christian films, mm-hmm. but they really haven't been haven't come back a whole lot. And so, with your with your experience, do you feel like that group is still just as difficult to guess what they will come back for, or do you think you can kind of, I mean, like what what is it? What are they? What are they after? Um, well, they're after big figures they admire so it's hard to top jesus christ as a as a big figure you admire i mean i think some of them came out for american sniper some of them have come out for some of these things um i mean if you had made the noah movie with mel gibson directing um starring you know somebody that they admire like that Mm. it could have been enormous box office Mm. yeah and they want to see, uh, they want to trust, they want to see people they trust deliver the message in a way that they believe. So when you have, I mean, this is a, an odd, there are many characteristics of the Christian consumer that are, film consumer that are different from the average film consumer. The average film consumer tends not to care what the director or the producer or the writer or the actor believes in, in their private lives. They tend to say, ah, oh, whatever, I just want to watch a great movie. The Christian consumer is much more interested in what does that person believe because I'm investing in him as in his career and in his life and his person. And I don't want to give him $10 to have him go around and turn around and mock my beliefs in the media or other things. And so that's why it's very important that when you, you know, when you do these, when you make these movies that you have people that are not going to undermine the message of the film, un- unintentionally maybe in your marketing campaign. It happens all the time. So 
So when Darren Aronofsky goes out, um, well, I experienced this with the Chronicles of Narnia. So I worked on the film. I helped to develop it. I helped to market it. And shortly before the film came out, the director, the writer, the producer, and the actor all made disparaging statements about Christians or religion or Christianity. And I could see in the comment section of the articles, I could see people saying, I was going to go to the movie next Tuesday, and I decided I'm not going to go if that's what this person believes. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be really mindful of that. And it's just common sense. If you and I were making the Harvey Milk story, we, you would never go into the media and say disparaging comments about gay people. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's insane. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. So, uh, but that common sense is kind of lost on Hollywood actors. And so it's pretty normal that an actor will say, in fact, uh, Christian Bale, so shortly before he makes the movie on Moses, he goes in the media and says, um, you know, I really enjoy playing Moses, but I think he was probably a terrorist. He said, I think he was probably bipolar. Was it bipolar or insane or something like that? Mm. And I could just hear, I mean, I could hear the cancellations, yeah. uh, people going, okay, I'm not going to go. I don't, want, I don't want to see a movie about a person that, I mean, think about it. Moses is admired by three major religions. They don't think he's a terrorist. They don't think he's bipolar. And yet you have the actor smarting off like that. And that costs that movie millions and millions of dollars. Mm. So there's a lot of factors that, you know, Hollywood never had to think about this stuff before. If I told this, when I tell this to executive friends, they're like, well, who, who, who cares what Christian Bale says? We made a great movie. It doesn't matter. If, if, if you undermine the audience in that way and mock them, they're not going to come. And, and, and I have to remind my friends um, that it's common sense. Like, I would, tell, I would tell some of my friends in Hollywood, I said, like, you and I wouldn't go make the Martin Luther King story and decide, hey, just for fun, let's make him wanting to kill his granddaughters. I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. and, th and then we wouldn't say to the, to the black audience, hey, come and watch a movie about your hero. And by the way, we've added a little, to make it more interesting, he wants to kill his two granddaughters. Mm -hmm. it, it's completely insane, but it's, it's par for the course. Now, you've been a part of uh, a few of the most successful uh, political films as well, Dinesh D'Souza's 2016 and America. Is the audience for that the same? Is it the same kind of thing with the the people that middle America that come out to the Christian films or is it a different, different animal to you? Um, they're slightly different. There are some of the crossover, but um, in the, the political films do really well on the weekdays and bad on the weekends. Very interesting. They're an older group. A lot of them are retired. Um, they have they have time during the week, and so they those those movies would tend to spike up in the week uh, week days and then spike down on the weekends. Um, so and the, the way that you market to market those kinds of movies, how does that look look different? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the political documentary is. I did a, also did a movie called Expelled with Ben Stein mm -hmm. that that I didn't produce, but I was in the marketing group of. And I mean, those are we kind of rediscovered the idea of the documentary as a theatrical experience. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's really important. That um, uh, we never called them documentaries. We always called them, you know, films. Uh, documentary is something you see on cable when you can't sleep at night. And these are really experiences in the theater that we wanted to create for people. So um, what, they're, they're what, more. what makes those theater worthy as opposed to other types of documentaries? Is it is it because it's a just a bigger idea of 
content or like what what do you think makes it a theatrical documentary it has to be visually interesting okay. yeah we make the mistake a lot of times of of just putting talking heads up and um, you know it's really important that it be the pace be fast and you have a lot of visual stimulation and um, even interviews some of them are done over the phone and you have a guy walking on the beach talking into his iPhone and the other guys at the other end and you're it's just really stimulating and interesting you have to hold attention and so um, most of these documentaries just do not do well but I would say on a more fundamental level that applies across the board is you want to tell us you want to tell a great story but you have to tell a great story about your great story as well and people neglect that and people love to be part of the journey of your making your film and so even with with my films we probably go out too early and invite people into the process so like with our Reagan film it's a long road and uh, people have been with us on this journey and it's like why is it taking so long well that's the normal yeah. course of events in Hollywood it just seems long because we've let them be part of the journey right um, but we'll have fans at Facebook say you know what's going on here why is it it's like no this is just movies take years and years and years to assemble all these pieces but but people are vested you know I was watching a reality show a while back and I remember thinking to myself I'm ready to buy whatever it is they're making because I've been so part of their journey and their process that I'll pay 10 bucks to buy the CD of this group mm. because I've watched them uh, in their process. And yeah. so when you let people be part of your process, yeah, it's a little unnerving, but they're they're going to be invested in the final work. And so, so when I am producing or marketing a film, I like to have a year during which to communicate to the audience about what we're doing. And we, and that's what I learned from The Passion. We had 13 months from the time Mel first went on The O'Reilly Factor to the release of the movie was 13 months. Wow. And so there's a 13-month journey of all these people who've been part of your process, as opposed to the normal Hollywood method, which is it's the week before, we're gonna blitz in the media and put up lots of billboards and go on all the talk shows. That's the normal method of doing things. It just doesn't work. So th with that in mind, does the quality of the film even matter? I mean, especially with the opening weekend being the most important thing, and if you've brought these people along and they're excited about your movie, if you failed to deliver a good movie, you'd still make a ton of money, right? Yeah, but word of mouth will kill it eventually, yeah. So you have to make a great movie. Well, you want to make a great movie. Yeah. If you can, <laughs> please make great movies. Yeah. But bad movies have succeeded too. Um, if the cause is important enough to people, this is one thing that I, another thing that I want to say about the Christian consumer is, I went to a meeting uh, with a very, very prominent person in Hollywood, one of the wealthiest people in Hollywood who owns a film studio. And he's, he wanted to talk about how can we make, he, he heard about God's Not Dead. And he's like, this is a great business. I got to get into this. I want to spend two and make 60. How do I get into this? And I just remember telling him, you know, this is like the goal in life is not to make the worst quality movie at the cheapest price and, you know, and trick people into coming. Like that's a, yeah. and so the point is, the Christian consumer is so desperate that they will watch a poorly made movie that reinforces it because they're just desperate. That doesn't mean they like it, right? If I'm in the desert and I haven't eaten for a week and you throw me a piece of rotten, crusty bread, I'm going to eat it like crazy. But for you to go back and say, Mark Joseph likes crusty, rotten bread, it's just not true. And that's what's happening. And so the Christian consumer is just as sophisticated 
but they're desperate. And so if you, if you make a poorly made $2 million movie with stars who haven't worked since 1977, they'll probably come. But they would really love to see you working with the best people in their heart of hearts. Right. There's nothing, um, you know, there's nothing meritorious about mediocrity. It's just that uh, the point is they're, they're so hungry. Mm. So if you come back now, the other alternative then is to say, okay, let's go make Noah, spend a lot of money with people they don't know, they have a problem with, who don't understand their values, who subvert their values, and then then they blame the Christian consumer. Why didn't you come out for Noah? What's wrong with you people? I mean, I, I feel sorry for the Christian in America. They get blamed for everything. They get blamed for watching lousy movies. They get blamed when, when the movies made for them didn't, didn't appeal to them. And it's just like, they, we love beating up on the, on the Christian consumer, but they're very smart. They know what they want. They know what they don't like. And, um, and they're, they're, they're not inscrutable. They, they can be understood. All right, let's go back. I want to hear um, how you got into this business and, and what your what your background is. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Japan. My parents were missionaries in Japan, so I lived there until I was 18. Um, uh, movie going was, uh, in Japan, is very expensive. I think it's like 30, it's always been like 30 bucks to watch a movie or something crazy. Why is that? I don't know why. I guess they just, they just, <laughs> Take on, pay, put fat percentages on top of the movie going oh. experience. So, movie going in theaters wasn't a huge part of my experience. My our, my family was relatively strict too, so it wasn't like I was at the movies a lot. I mean, I probably watched like Superman and Raiders and stuff like that. Um, the other day, I was talking to John Voight, and I told him that I'd, I was it coming home? Not coming home. It was The Champ. I said I, The Champ was the first movie I ever watched in the theater, and it was. Uh, but anyway, so I was kind of sporadic, but I watched a lot of movies on TV, you know, more, more than that. Um, I didn't really think about film. I was more of a music guy, um, but I studied radio, TV, and film in college. And uh, um, I kind of got into producing as an afterthought. I, I came in more on the development side, so I spent a lot of time developing movies, reading scripts, and doing marketing for Walden. And so um, Chronicles of Narnia, Ray, Because of Winn-Dixie, Holes... Um, I Am David, uh, probably 12 different films that I worked on during that Chronicles of Narnia course during that time. And how did you get that job? Was that was, something you were doing? I was working in the music division. Okay. Uh, Walden had a label called W Recordings, and they shut that down. And they just said, why don't you come over and work on the film side? So that was my grand uh, design. Um, I moved to producing just more out of frustration than anything else because... On the development side, I'd be getting scripts, and then on the marketing side, I'd be—they'd often be finished films, and it was too late to fix things by then. And and I just realized, like, if I could get it early in the process, then I wouldn't have to feel like I was having to fix, try to fix stuff that couldn't be fixed. Um, and and you know, I always had chance. I know that with Joshua, I remember. Um, uh, There's a scene in Joshua where a band is playing at a church, and they wanted to hire. They were going to hire a boy band, uh, a Christian boy band, to play the worship band at a church. And I'm like, guys, you can't have like a Christian boy band dancing at a church service. And it was just things like that that were so frustrating. Or, like, or the casting decisions also were very frustrating. Because uh. they would cast somebody 
we cast an actor. I, I shouldn't say who. We cast an actor, or I, we didn't. We Walden uh, casted an actor to play uh, Aslan in the voice for the, the voice Aslan's voice in the Chronicles of Narnia. And I did a 30-second Google search and found this guy had said horrible things in the past. And I said, we can't have this guy play Aslan. So we went back and replaced him with Liam Neeson. But the point is, there were things that that I wanted to fix earlier. And so I knew that if I became a producer, in addition to marketing, I could have more of an impact and prevent some of the bad things from happening down the road. So I think that's why. And so I've produced my first movie in 2010 called Doonby, uh, about with John Schneider, about a drifter. Um, and uh, just kind of move from there. So I kind of wear two hats today. We have films that our company markets and does publicity for, and we develop campaigns for that I am not a part of the, being the producer of, but then we also have films that we produce from the beginning in different ways. And are you, so you said at first you were involved in music. Was that right out of school, the, your first kind of jobs were music jobs? I've had so many jobs, I, I don't know how to, where to begin. I've, <laughs> I've anchored the news in English and Japanese. I've been a radio broadcaster. Did you stay in Japan? Or? No, here, okay. I, I did it from the US. So I okay. spent about 10 years, um, I worked as a news anchor for CNN, for Group W, and, and I did the, the, the broadcasts of, in Japanese of the news that was aired in Japan from LA. Okay. So I'd be at a studio in West LA and I would, um, I had you know vocal training and perfect hair and anchor hair and everything. I did that for a long time. And then I did a, hosted a show for a Japanese network called NHK for about six years and I interviewed famous Americans basically. Oh. And then they would air it in Japan. So I've had a lot of different careers, um, and it's just it had, I had a chance to work in all the different venues. Yeah. So being a producer, the, the term producer is kind of something that a lot of people are, have no idea what that is or what you do, and it can mean so many different things. How would you define being a producer? Yeah, be, be really careful of the term producer, especially if you're an investor, because it does it may not mean what you think it means. So really there's multiple, a, a producer can literally be a person who knows nothing about movies, but happened to have some money and brought some money to a project, and then he's an executive producer of the movie. Mm -hmm. And so it's really, that's probably the most misinterpreted word in the, in the, in the history of, of Hollywood. So. I would say generally there is, um, you know, the line producer, the guy who was in the set. Ralph Winter is a great example of a line producer who cracks the whip on the set. Man, he is amazing. He gets people to work. He knows what to do. He motivates people. He's there 24-7. Uh, that's, you know, one. Um, another would be the executive producer who brings financing. So that person may not have a creative bone in his body. He is just there to line up the financing. He knows how to get this tax credit and that gap and this and that and the other thing. Mm. And then there's more of a creative producer, um, which is more the person who assembles the team. Okay, who's gonna be? And so I'm probably more in that area rather than um, a line producer or a financial part. I'm more like, okay, I wanna build a building and I know what I wanna build, but I can't actually lay tile or paint. But I know a great painter, mm. I know a great guy who can lay tile, and I bring those people together and kind of explain what I want to do, and they catch the vision, and we all work together. So in the case of Reagan, um, Howie Klossner wrote the screenplay. I kind of told him what I wanted to do, and, and um, you know, we just went through the big picture, and then he really delivered it. So ha let's, let's talk about Reagan. When did that project 
begin for you? I mean, I see a picture of you with Reagan on yeah. the wall here. So yeah. you, you've known him for a while, I guess. Or you knew, you knew I him. I mean, knowing him is a little extra. You met him. I met him one time. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I got a picture with him when he had Alzheimer's in his office and spent some time with him, but uh, I, I wouldn't say I knew him. Um, How old are you in that picture? Um, I was probably 20, almost 30. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it always been percolating. I always thought it would be a great story, and I kept waiting for someone to do it, and I kept never seeing it. Oh, this is strange. So, um, I was driving in the Midwest for my cousin's wedding, and I was driving with my family, and I got pulled over for speeding, and uh, I looked down at the ticket that the guy gave me. He gave me a five hundred dollar ticket for speeding, and it said you must appear in court in Dixon, Illinois which is Reagan's hometown. And I think that's probably the moment that I'm like, I'm probably supposed to make a movie about it. <laughs> so I, I had to spend the night at the Holiday Inn in Dixon, Illinois, and wow. pay my $500 fine, and um, went to see where Reagan grew up, and saw the house he lived in. And so that's probably the moment that it gelled. And okay. I, knew, uh, I knew the author of a book on Reagan that I wanted, that I wanted to option. And so I called him from Reagan's from the river that Reagan was a lifeguard, and I just asked him some questions, and and uh, so that's kind of where it began. Um, and that was, you know, that was quite a while ago. So, for working producers like me, we're always working, and it's not like we can just suspend our life and say, okay, we're just going to do this. So, one of the reasons movies take a long time is we're working on other things as we go along. We have to all keep our other projects going so in the in the in those you know in that space of time i've been producing lots of other movies and then slowly developing this over time and getting the team together and financing and everything so uh yeah people have a misunderstanding about films they take a long time i mean narnia took 50 years to get made you know uh, unbroken took close to 50 years so i hope it, i hope these don't take 50 years but <laughs> five to ten years is you know fairly normal for for our line of work now something like reagan you could make a movie about Reagan without optioning that book, right? right. Because he's a public figure and mm -hmm. any public information. So is it that you specifically like like that guy's take on, yeah. on Reagan's story? Yeah, I liked his take. And he had written two books, so we optioned both of them. And yeah, you can write a book about a or a movie about And then figure. you, because you optioned that, if there were specific things that he had researched and found out that isn't elsewhere, only you could, you could put that stuff in your movie, but someone else who made a movie about Reagan couldn't, right? Well, uh, I mean, you want to be careful, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the public domain about Reagan that probably is in our movie too, just because I've immersed myself in his life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you want to ground, it's good to ground it in something. Um, you know, you, you want to have be able to say, this is based on the New York Times best-selling book. You don't have to, but it's, mm. it's helpful. And I get his input. Um, we both know a lot about Reagan, and so I'll call him up and we'll talk through different issues or things we should emphasize or not emphasize and things like that. And I saw you you guys just officially decide on your director for that. How did, how did you decide on Sean McNamara? How did that happen? We had another director that we were talking with, and we've talked to a number of directors over that period of time. But, um, you know, Sean came recommended to us, and... I didn't know until we started talking that he was there. His first job was miking Reagan for the inaugural ball. Oh, wow. So that was kind of interesting. And um, I think what I've learned through this process, one of the many things I've learned is the, the character and personality of the person is really important to the work. And so our Reagan writer 
is kind of like Reagan. He's optimistic. He's sunny. It's always going to tomorrow's going to be better. Tomorrow's a new day, and that helps come. It comes through in the work. And um, so, if you have a glum, sour person, he's probably not the best person to really capture the spirit of a guy who is optimistic as Reagan was. Doesn't mean he couldn't, but you want to try to get somebody who's. And I think for the director, it's really somebody. It's good to have somebody that really. Um, he doesn't have to admire Reagan per se, but it's somebody that respects him and wants to do this and is excited about it, not that you're dragging somebody along. And um, But Sean has the technical expertise. He's directed some hard movies to direct. You know, Soul Surfer was a, a tough movie to direct because there was a lot of action in terms of surfing, but then there was also, you want to capture these actors like Helen Hunt and others who, who are really, you know, good actors. Um, I think Narnia suffered because our director had never had not really directed human beings before. Mm. He had directed Shrek and suddenly not only human beings but children. You have to direct children now and I don't think so I felt like Narnia suffered because of our director not having years and years of experience working with humans and children and not being able to draw out those performances from those kids. So it just felt a little wooden to me those performances. You have a big family, six kids. You mm-hmm. said. What What has that been like working in this industry and and having a big family? Um, usually, one travels with me, so we, we get good time on the road together. Uh, we've had a lot of good experiences over the years. Um, yeah, I I think I have produced friends who've been producers in Hollywood for a long time and. Most of them will say they regret not spending more time with their kids. And so I always wanted to avoid that mistake. I'm sure I'll make other mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to incorporate my kids into my work as much as possible and make them part of what I'm doing and travel with me. Because uh, I don't want to look back and go, oh, I had a great career, but you know my kids didn't get to have spend time with me. So I've just tried to compensate for that in my own way. And so. Um, we get a lot of, of good times together. They can see what I do. They can be a part of it or just hang out. Sometimes they work on projects with me. So, um, you know, I, I think we're all going to, on our deathbeds, I'm pretty sure we're all going to say, I should have had more kids. And we're not going to go, oh, I should have made more movies or I should have done mm-hmm. that. But we're going to say, because that's what you leave behind. And um, so there's part of Hollywood has been, you know, not emphasizing family enough and I think a lot of people died lonely lives in Hollywood old people's homes because they were mm. their priorities weren't weren't right. Um, you produced the Jerry Lewis movie Max Rose. Can you talk at all about what what that was like working with him? I was a I was an associate producer, so I was okay. not the main producer. By the way, associates another category we should throw in. <laughs> Uh, that's a fourth category. Um, so I was a little bit lower in the totem pole. The main producers uh, and director really were the driving force behind it early on. So I came to it when it was already in in production. I did visit the set a few times, but um, they basically reached out to Jerry and and kind of got him out of retirement with a, with a great script. And so it was a great learning process for me too, just spending some time on the set watching Jerry. He was kind of self-directed. I remember one time our director... Uh, said, okay, Mr. Lewis, in this scene, I want you to do it. And Jerry's like, no. 
<laughs> roll, roll the camera. And so he, he, it was fun. But he's a great director. He's written books on directing. So mm-hmm. you, can, you can give him some cuts of slack. And this is a first-time director directing him. Um, but in, in a way, you know, in a way he was good to him. He, he worked with him and um, didn't embarrass him. But, you know, he knew things that, yeah. that Daniel didn't know. So it was just an honor to be a part of it in a small way. I spent a lot of time on the film after we finished um, uh, doing a lot of screenings for it, kind of working through the problems with the film. I remember one person came. We did a screening here in my office in our screening room. And, and one, I, I knew we had a problem when a lady said, I couldn't get my husband to come tonight because he didn't want to watch a movie about a guy who loses his wife. Mm. And I was like, oh, we, got, we have a problem here. People don't want to, men especially, do not want to watch a movie to have to think about what's it, what would it be like to lose my wife. Mm. So we realized we had to change this from a movie about dying to a movie about learning to live after your spouse has passed away. And so it's much less morose now than it was early on. And it's more about... Jerry's character discovers the joy of life, even though his wife isn't there. He did, he has a, there's a wonderful scene in an old people's home where he and his buddies uh, do me, play music together and just having a great time. And so, uh, so you learn things. You, you you learn things through that process. Again, back to the the, the passion example. If we had just thrown that out there, it, we would have learned that the hard way mm. people don't want to yeah. see this stuff and so we, we tweaked it and it still keeps the essence of the story but but more about more about learning to live and and he does die in the I think he dies and he dies in the final scene but um, but yeah I was I was totally caught off guard by the guy who said by the lady who said my husband won't come mm. that, that that rocked my world what do you think it was about that project that made Jerry want to come out of retirement and do that I don't know that's a good question I just don't know I don't think he's done a movie in over 20 years and yeah. uh, something about it just resonated it mm. was a story close to Daniel the writer's heart and um, and he um, it's it's his grandfather's story basically slightly um, uh, embellished and so um, it was just uh, it, was, it was great to see it come out I wish it would have come out broader and bigger um, we had some challenges with getting a major studio interested in it, so it went more of an independent route. But and that was probably, you know, for me, it was about three years, uh, so it was a long process. But you learn through through every every experience. Do you have a, a favorite project of your from your career so far? Um, I think the best done movie. Um, the best done movies that I've ever been a part of, in addition to The Passion, were probably Holes, and um, that's one of my wife's favorite movies. Yeah, Holes <laughs> and, and I Am David. There was a movie called okay. I Am David that was Jim Caviezel. Holes is uh, really interesting because it's this, the writer of the book wrote the screenplay, and uh, that doesn't always work, but when it works, it works really well. Hmm. I think it was it had so much depth to it. There was a lot of spiritual undertones to it. You know, the hand, uh, the thumb of God's thumb, if you remember that. Um, the sort of the racism and how the the rain begins to fall when when the racism is is co- conquered and mm-hmm. but yet on one level it was just a fun movie you know with with the kids and all that stuff and so Mr. Sir and so it was just a complex rich wonderful movie I think that's probably a great example of all these things happening at once where there is a message there but it's wrapped up in you know there's some broccoli in there but it's wrapped up in a lot of uh, mixed mixed metaphor here it's wrapped up in a lot of sweet fun things 
Um, and sometimes these message movies can get too serious, you know. It's like, the, especially especially my Christian brothers and sisters who were so intent to send a message. And you know what? It's like this is entertainment, first of all. You have to entertain. And what's the old line about if you want to send a message, call Western Union? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't agree with that. But but you have to make things entertaining. And, um, and, and remember my wife. Remember my wife. You know, like, after a hard week, if she wants to go to the movie, she doesn't want to be preached at. She doesn't want to be yelled at. She doesn't want to be made to feel bad. She wants to be inspired. She wants to laugh. She wants to be entertained. She wants to get away. Calgon, take me away. She wants to get away from her life and experience two hours of something magical. Mm-hmm. And so remember that. Do you think it's even a, a foolish thing to even try and think of films as an evangelical tool? So uh, Mel taught me another great lesson. On, on that scale, one day uh, preachers would come in every day to watch the film, and one day a preacher said, "Mr. Gibson, can we put an 800 number up at the end of the film where people can get saved?" And I remember Mel just looked at him like, "What?" And then the guy said, well, "What about a website like you know, www.jesuswhatever.com?" And Mel just looked at him like he was he was nonplussed, and he it wasn't that he wasn't sympathetic to what he was saying, mm-hmm. but he said, I, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a filmmaker. I can't, it's not, he, and he said, he said, it's not my job to push people off the cliff. He goes, your job is to push people off the cliff. My job is to take them to the edge of the cliff. I've never heard salvation compared to murder before, but <laughs> so my job is to bring them to the edge of the cliff and your job is to push them over. And I can only take them so far. Yeah. And I thought there was a lot of wisdom there. And so... He gave the example of his lawyer, who was not Christian. He had shown his lawyer the film on Friday, and on Monday he had read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over the weekend out of curiosity about the film. Mm. I think he considered that like a, a great Huge. win for what he had what he did. But yeah. but I think the artist's job is to trouble the waters and but not but I think you go too far. And by the way, this can happen in other contexts political people or progressive people there was the movie that I saw on uh, what was that movie um, it was a movie oh the but the butler right mm-hmm. the butler was this fun story about the butler in the White House and all of a sudden um, this was the kind of secular progressive version of an altar call in the last couple minutes of the film it became a commercial for Barack Obama and as a viewer, I felt betrayed. Like, wait a minute, you're telling me the story of the White House butler, and all of a sudden in the last two minutes, you're making it an ad to go out and vote for Obama, to mm. fulfill the butler's you know, wishes by voting for And that's a betrayal of me and, the, and you as an audience, uh, the audience and the filmmakers. And so I, I think that that's how non-religious people feel. When you tell a great story, at the very end, you come in for the clothes, and it's not appropriate, right? Mm. And also, as a Christian, I would say trust God. trust. Trust the, the God of the universe with the story that he will make the connection for this person to wherever he wants to take them. You don't have to do everything in the space of a two-hour movie. I have a real estate agent in Japan, a friend of mine, who watched the Chronicles of Narnia and came to me and all of a sudden she understood Christianity because she watched Chronicles of Narnia. And I was like, oh, so she made the, 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 the synapses in her brain all connected when she saw Aslan, da 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 and so I think the artist and the filmmaker has to trust the audience, 
trust God. Don't try to do the job of the preacher and the artist. And by the way, preachers trying to be filmmakers is another problem too. Mm. I think everyone needs to do their job and not try to do too much and not try to do the other person's job. And so watching Mel, you know, have fun with the pastor um, and say, I can't do that. I can't put up a, a website. Uh, and even a movie like Woodlawn, I think the last couple of minutes it just got way too preachy. It was this great football story. And then all of a sudden it was like, join the movement, go here, sign up. Uh, again, that's just, you're, you're trying to do too much. So do you think the there should be anything that looks different about a producer or a director who is a Christian if you looked at their body of work and what they do as opposed to someone who is not of faith? Like, would there be any discerning difference in just looking at the movies that they make or should there be any difference to you? Or is it just about, you know, we make good films and that's, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, we're both trying to make good, entertaining work. Um, You know, I can't speak for everybody, but clearly there are some films that you probably wouldn't work on. You know, what that is, I don't know. Everybody would be different. Um, Some films are, have spiritual messages. Some are just great stories. Uh, Max Rose, there's really no overt religious element or faith element in it at all, but it's just the story of a man who uh, his wife passes away, and, and for 65 years he was faithful to her. And he says in the movie, I, I ne- never cheated on you, or you know, I was faithful to you all those years. Mm-hmm. And just to love the bond that they have. Um, so I, I don't know. I think, I think there's room for I Am David. It was a story about a, a boy who's trying to find his mom. Um, so I think every story is different. Um, when I worked in music, I used to talk about you have 10 songs on an album. There was a thing called an album back then, and there was 10 songs because there was limited space. And these Christian artists would make, like, every song was about, you know, Jesus and God, and, and it was just so jarring because my life wasn't like that. My life is about I got to pick up the mail, I got to, you know, mm. eat breakfast, eat lunch. I got it. There, there's a whole life that I live. I, I fall in love, I break up, and these Christian artists were only addressing, like, one part of my life. And they weren't addressing all these other things. And so I've always felt like if you're making a 10-song record, you know, maybe two songs are about the breakup with that girlfriend you had, and three songs are about how God has changed your life, and two songs are about baseball, whatever it might be, that you can talk about everything. And so I think the body of work should be the same, that maybe you made a baseball movie. And and in all these things you did, your worldview was cohesive. You know, you didn't, you weren't doing things that didn't, that, yeah. that were out of, bounds of what you believe but you have the ability to I remember that George Will the conservative columnist used to write books about baseball and I thought that was so cool like he wasn't obsessed with conservative politics to the point that he couldn't write a book about baseball and enjoy that part of his life and so I think you know I think this is God's earth and we're allowed to explore all kinds of topics and and do anything really but make sure it's under the rubric and under the umbrella of being consistent with who you are and Sometimes if it's your own project, then it's more consistent with you than other projects that you've come along and come alongside other people's visions. Mm. Have you refused to do the marketing for anything because you didn't want to promote that particular? Oh, sure. I mean, yeah, if something is really out of bounds, um, yeah, there's stuff that I I would just feel kind of icky. And I'll 
recommend somebody else. Or, what about if you just think it's horrible and you don't think it's even if it, you did agree with what it was about, you're like, I don't want to be the one who's pushing this on people. <laughs> well, I, I do enjoy working with filmmakers um, who, um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say icky, but if the work is really unprofessional or amateurish, but I really see a seed of greatness in them, then I would do that. Yeah, so I, I won't name the project, but there was a project that came to me that I remember when it came to me, I went to my bosses at Walden and I said, this film is really horribly made, but there's a, it's a great idea. And I said, why don't we give this guy $10 million and let him remake it properly with real actors? And now the film went on to be a big success. But my first instinct was, let's get this guy and tell, help him tell it right. Mm. Um, it became a success without that, and so the person has continued to make kind of amateurish films. But mm. if that person was ever given this proper tools, it would, he'd make amazing movies that mm. everybody would be proud of. So yeah, I, I have taken projects that I really felt like this person has a great career ahead and I want to help shape, shape it in, in the future and, and, and grow it and make it better. Mm. So. So yes, it's true. <laughs> uh, lastly, I wanted to talk about the latest thing coming out that you are a part of The Vessel with Martin Sheen. Um, you want to tell us about that project and how, yeah. you, how you got involved with that? Yeah, it was quite a ways along when I joined, even more further along than Max Rose. And okay. so um, content-wise, um, the only things that I really had an impact were were uh, some of the it was hard for people to understand it, it's it's challenging for people to follow this film and so some of the the VO work was was challenging so we really reworked some of that to really make it a, be able to be followed look at it it's a it's a film made by guys who work with Terrence Malick and Terrence Malick was an executive producer on the project so it definitely has that Malick um, vibe to it. Uh, it's not a neat narrative, whatever. It's mm -hmm. it's just more of a an esoteric kind of how do I describe it? Um, it's a it's a visual story that's very much um, hard to categorize filmically. And so, as I would do some screenings, I'd have people say, people are very always very nice, and they'll say, well. I didn't really follow it, but I'm sure it was just me, you know, and, and they would say things like that. So mm. part of it was um, the main characters' VOs were hard to follow and the Spanish was a little too pronounced. And so we, we worked on that and, and Martin had some good notes on that as well. Martin felt the same way. But I think what I'm really proud about this film is it does have a kind of a spiritual undertone. And also it was done... Our director shot it in English and Spanish separately. Mm. So it's really the first time that I know of that a major, well, a theatrically released film was shot in two languages simultaneously, not dubbed later, yeah. but literally scene for scene by scene was shot in English and then Spanish. Mm. And uh, it could be the future, you know, as America becomes more and more, you know, they call it the browning of America. Well, it could be that in the future we'll do this, directors will do this. Mm. And so that's really interesting. And then just, you know, uh, Martin's involvement. Um, he plays a Catholic priest. And I always like it when a Catholic priest or a, when a clergyman isn't a crazed killer or a sexual monster or whatever. And he's just a, a good guy. Mm. And he's trying to help this town come to terms with loss. And 
they lost uh, uh, 46 of their kids were wiped out in a, in a, in a tsunami in a tidal wave and the, the town just sort of s shuts down emotionally and sexually in every way they're not going to have any more kids because they don't want to have any more loss and so it's really the role that he plays in helping them um, come back to life as a town for me personally I grew up in Japan where there was we would spend our summers in an area that was later hit by the tsunami 40 years later and destroyed and so you know, it kind of has a, a, a personal meaning for me to be a part of it, even though I didn't write it. Um, just that sense of I went back to that spot and I saw the very, you know, the beach where all this had gone on. And it's just it's it's a loss. I wrote an article for the rap about for me, the spiritual meaning of this film is um, in Japan where the tsunami hit. They the tsunamis hit every couple of hundred years. And so when it hit the last time, whenever it was in the 1600s, 1700s, the townspeople had to put up markers and they said, do not build homes below this point because this is where the waves came to. And the sociologists would say that people began to ignore it. So after 100 years or so, they began to ignore the markers and they kept building, building, building closer. Um, and there's a great you know, spiritual lesson for me there. Like yeah. we think, ah, our grandparents were stupid and they didn't understand. No, they were very wise people. Yeah. And they put markers on the path. And we come along and we think, ah, you know, we don't need that. We're, you know, we're, we're more enlightened. But the markers, you know, it's, uh, the uh, nature doesn't change and the tsunami patterns don't change. And so you can ignore the markers and think your grandparents were stupid or whatever, um, but you're just going to suffer because the, the tidal wave will come and if you ignored the markers, then you, you'll you'll be dead. You'll suffer, and you'll be dead. So that's really interesting. Uh, and the, the the basically the waves went almost exactly to the spot that the markers were. Wow. I mean, they were like really very very close. And um, and there was one town called uh, Anayoshi that had obeyed and had never built beyond the markers, and they were totally safe. Wow, that's really interesting. Hmm. So with it being shot in English and in Spanish, it's basically two different movies right so can oh, you yeah. see can you see a different difference in i mean I, I assume you've probably watched both versions yeah, we're right we're actually going to release it i forgot to mention you we're going to release it um alternating so theaters will run it in english one time and then spanish and they'll go back and mm. forth so people will have the choice you know six o'clock is spanish uh, nine o'clock is english and it's kind of an interesting experiment we don't know how because i mean go. it's not it's with, with that it's not just it's different takes you know it's di com so it is a it completely is. different movie yeah. i wonder which one if the director would say which one you know, is better i've never watched it in that way but that's an interesting that's an interesting take um the only spanish that wasn't wasn't sort of native was martin's spanish he knows spanish but you know he had to learn it sort of phonetically um, his real last name is Estevez, of course, so he has mm. the background, but he's not a native speaker. But everybody else were native speakers, so they, they nailed it. Uh, so, But I haven't heard any complaints about his, his mm. Spanish. But, yeah, that's an interesting thought. I've never watched it in that way to see how it flows differently, English versus Spanish. Because, I mean, you, you would have to, the edit, you'd have to edit the movie basically completely again because it's not just taking, you know, oh, I liked... Because you're probably going to use different takes depending on performances are going to change when he mm -hmm. when he does the Spanish version. Yeah, it didn't add a whole lot to the budget. Okay. Because um, you're there, and yeah. you're, but you know it's time, so I would say maybe five to ten percent increase in in overall budget because of it. Okay. But I mean, you're opening up a whole new market, so why not? Right. Probably five percent. Okay. 
Uh, last thing, I like to ask, what uh, what was your favorite movie of the past twelve months? Past twelve months. Oh man. I usually watch movies on airplanes and I I don't watch in theaters as much as I used to. I would say in the last 12 months, my favorite movie was probably a movie I worked on called Little Boy. And it was such a special movie to me. Uh, I had my son, my first and only son during this time. And and the story is about a father and a son. Um, And uh, it was just an unexpected sweet movie but it was not saccharine sweet it was it was realistically sweet to uh, a couple of mexican filmmakers uh out norman rockwell norman rockwell visually um they made a really great movie um we didn't get a chance to market it the way it should have been marketed just because of the strictures of the of the um, studio um it was a rich and deep and complex movie that they wanted to be marketed in a very simplistic way, and it couldn't be marketed that way. Mm. And so it didn't reach its full audience capacity, but it was just an incredible film to be a part of, and it's rich and deep. And um, Also, some critics didn't like it because they felt it was like, they felt that it made it seem like God had sanctioned the atom bomb dropping on Hiroshima, and that wasn't it at all. I don't know why they misinterpreted it that way. Um, but it was really uh, an incredible film um, that I, if I was just a consumer, if I was just a film person, I would have, I would have loved to have watched it and to have been a part of it. And also to watch, um, it's really in, in both Max Rose and Little Boy's case, to watch the film um, over time, because I saw earlier edits of both of them that were not very good. And so to really watch the process and to see the role of the editor in this process how you can um you know it's like you have that you're sculpting and it's like really a weird shape and you begin to chisel and chisel and you begin to see and it begins to take shape and yeah uh, we got really negative reviews of max rose early on because unfortunately some people on our team wanted to let it be seen at can three years ago and rushed out an edit and it was just horribly panned and now the reviews are much better so mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for for me it was Little Boy, just a, a complex, rich story. Yes, they were filmmakers who were Christians. Yes, there were some things in there, but the totality of the story was unexpected and complex, and in some ways, and uh, so so yeah, it's 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 nice to to, to have a film that um, you're not just working on, but but you also just love it. What what do you see as the future? of the faith-based thing move faith-based movies in 10 and 20 years would you would you rather it not even be a subgenre anymore and just be christians are making movies in the mainstream market or do you see it just growing bigger and bigger and becoming its own whole genre yeah i always say this but i'm looking forward to the day when um there is a, a genre called secular based film and <laughs> And it services 5% of the population or 10% that are atheists or agnostic or don't want their religion in their movies. And the rest of the population, the normal people like you and I, who don't separate our mm. faith from our daily lives, that yeah. the rest of the movies service that. So I'm looking forward to, I'm going to bug my friend Sony to get rid of the faith-based shingle 
and make a secular-based shingle. And then I joke that we'll have like the biographies of great atheists of American history, or you know Darwin, or and then we'll have the biopics there, and they'll cater directly to the Americans who do that. But yeah, the rest of America is most of us. You know, we want faith everywhere. We want our. I mean. It takes a lot of effort to keep people's religion out of stories. It takes a lot. It's a full-time job, right? So when you watch the Brady Bunch, and the Bradys never go to church, that took a lot of effort to make sure they never attended a church service or a, a religious function. Because normal people, you go to church once in a while, or maybe you go once in a while, or once a year, or every week, or whatever. But it's a normal part of your life. And so Hollywood has been people working overtime to pretend that we're not religious. And so if we can just get back to honest storytelling, the religion and the faith will naturally creep back in and that'll be normal filmmaking. So that's what I hope for. But I have total respect for secular people. And if you are a diehard secular person, I believe you should be able to watch films too, but you're the niche. And let's treat you as if you're a special niche and maybe we'll have special theaters for you, um, and we'll you know we'll only tell secular stories for you. But that's that's the that's what the equation should be if we're honest. And this idea of religious people as this weird niche that we have to cater to it's just it's just not accurate. It is in some countries. You know, I grew up in Japan, which is highly secular, and so Japan is a great place where I understand why there would be a niche for a faith-based division uh, because it's a small segment. But yeah, for the rest of us, I'd love to see, you know, I, I don't consider myself a religious filmmaker. I just make movies. And and uh, so I, I'm looking forward to the day when Hollywood studios kind of reflect that population and and just make movies normally and don't work so hard. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of effort to keep faith out of stories and even unbroken. You know, it took a lot of effort for Angelina Jolie and... Was it the Coen Brothers to you know to de-spiritualize that story, mm. and uh, and I don't think he would be happy if he was alive. He feared this for during his lifetime. This is why he refused studios constantly because he wanted and to to reduce. Um, in fact, secular film critics, if you read their reviews of Unbroken, it's like this story doesn't make sense because there's all this torture and no redemption, and. Uh, so I look forward to that day when we just tell stories honestly and normally and don't try to keep the faith out of them. 